you will, take your Bibles and again and turn with us to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. As you're turning there, I'm going to turn a little further. John chapter 20. I keep going back to this because I want you to keep it in mind as we read every part of this gospel. Uh, It is John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that, or that's a, that's a clause of purpose, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Would you pray with us this, mo- this afternoon? Father, thank You so much for the fact that You give us the Gospel of John, that Your Word, inspired, infallible, inerrant Word, that not only is is <laughs> is pure and perfect for our faith and practice, but it is also sufficient. That it is not just a good book for days gone by, but it is relevant as the day is right now. As fresh as your mercies are every morning, so your word is applicable to our lives. And I pray as we open up together the word of God tonight that you would speak into my heart that you would speak through the words that you've given me. I pray I'd, I'd say everything you want said and nothing more. That hiding me behind the cross, Father, it would not be me, but you that is front and center, that speaks into each of our lives. For it's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. As we look into this passage this evening, first of all, I want to uh, encourage you that uh, as John writes, again, it is with purpose. It is, it is that believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you might have life in His name. As, as such, it's important for us to understand how John organizes, again, differently than the other three Gospels, but with that purpose of persuading us that we can indeed trust Christ. And what he says about himself is reliable and relevant to every one of us this evening. We begin in verse 12 of chapter 2. John chapter 2, verse 12. After this, he went, up, he went down to Capernaum, that is from uh, there at Cana of Galilee, after the wedding feast and the, sign, the first of his many signs that John records. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He... And his mother and his brothers, just want to make a little land yap. Dr. Allison told us that's something extra at no extra cost. Uh, But here it is. Jesus had siblings. Mary was not an eternal virgin. He was the first of her children and the only son of God. But she did have other children. We find out later. He had at least four brothers, uh, or four brothers were mentioned, and then at least two sisters. So being the oldest of seven uh, by Scripture's account, whether he had more or not, Scripture doesn't say, and we don't conjecture out of silence. But we do understand Jesus was aware of family dynamics. He, he, his mother, and his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Don't... 
need to understand how many days or what that significance was, but it was after that, look with me, verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was near, that is near at hand, it was close on the calendar, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem, from the Jewish perspective, is always up. It is a mountain city, you know, it is on Mount Zion, that, that's true, but it is also spiritually up. Uh, the psalmist uh, there, I believe it's in like 120 through 132, 133, those uh, right in there, the, all those psalms are called psalms of ascent because they were sung as people walked into Jerusalem for the different ver- uh, festivals of the faith. So here we see verse 13, the Passover was near and Jesus, fulfilling all righteousness, presents himself as long with so many others that at that Passover uh, for the festival itself. And he found in the temple those who were setting, uh, uh, selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge or a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and with the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To, and to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business or a den of thieves. His disciples remembered that. It was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him in the midst of this chaos that he had created in a a temporal sense, what sign do you show us as to your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them in in a unique way. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. We begin this afternoon as we look into God's word together here in John chapter 2. First of all, we need to see the problem of religion. The problem of religion. And I'm not talking about pure religion undefiled. I'm talking about man's attempt to please God on his terms. A, a denial of truth, whether it's revealed truth right out of Scripture or whether it's, it's conceived ideas and pagan religious practices and, and things that, that the world, apart from Christianity, hold important in their festivities and and all kinds of observances, there is always a problem. But specifically, Jesus comes to address the concerns of the Father and the Son and the Spirit regarding the deadness of that religion that was supposed to be the conduit of truth to the entire world. And so he comes this first time. First of all, let's look in verse 13. Again, he spent a little time in Cana, he's gone to Capernaum, which not at this point, but when you watch the, the outplaying of his ministry, Capernaum became kind of a, 
uh, a central headquarters, a location that he came back to again and again as he would make these preaching tours. He would come back there, and uh, it's central in the life of his public ministry. But he says here in verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, this is important for you and me to just put a a, a markdown that John, the gospel writer here, really does help us, one, with his mentions of the observance of the Passover on three different occasions, kind of give us an idea of how long Jesus' ministry actually endured. Uh, none of the others give us kind of any kind of time uh, table that really helps us know how long he was uh, publicly ministering. But John gives us that in these three different places that he mentions his observance or his participation in the, in the Passover meal and the Passover feast and all the, the activities surrounding that. Now, first of all, the problem of religion, verse 13, religion will, guaranteed folks, dim your spiritual vision. You say, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Isn't religion supposed to help us understand spiritual things? Yes. A relationship with Jesus Christ certainly does that. A religion that is based on the truth of God's Word certainly does that. But let me assure you that anything that denies the truth of God's Word or thinks that you know all there is to know and that you are the final authority, you know, it's, well, that old saying, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. That is as wrong as the day is long. God settles it, God, excuse me, God said it, that settles it. Whether you and I believe it is impertinent. It is, it, is, it is of no account. It is mute whether you and I believe it or not in the sense of whether it's right or wrong or whether it's settled. Thy word is forever settled in heaven. And you and I need to bring that, those fundamental truths of when God says it, that settles it to every one of our life's events, every moment of our life whether it's drinking coffee in the morning or facing a challenging meeting at work or whether it's a, 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 a twisted and complicated family uh, dynamic, whatever it may be, you and I need to come to terms with the fact what God says into this situation is what is true. And I need to act in accordance with that word, not how I feel about that word, but what that word says to me. Now, Jesus Christ comes into the Passover at Jerusalem this first time. Why is that important? Because he will one day be the final Paschal lamb. He'll be the final sacrifice. No sacrifice will be needed after his. And he is willing at this moment. He's presenting himself at Jerusalem at the moment of the Passover. And he begins in John's mind and in the way John constructs his gospel, it's telling us, listen, from the very beginning, he knew exactly what his purpose was. He lived with eternity in mind. And here we see that while he knew that, and while it is revealed ultimately in, in light of the resurrection to his disciples and they believed it, the Jewish leaders then and afterwards never really saw the truth that Jesus Christ was the final Passover lamb. The scripture tells us again in verse 13 that even though he was there to observe the Passover, a Passover, a festival of the Jews ordained by God to point people toward the fact that salvation is not by works, but is through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. From the moment it was instituted as, the last, as part of the last plague in Egypt, 
It wasn't about, are you good? Or are you, are you faithful? Are, are you above reproach? Are you ethically a good businessman? It wasn't about what they were doing. It was, will you believe God at his word that if you'll sacrifice, as I've instructed, a lamb that you've taken into your home for 14 days, that inside and outside is perfectly without blemish. If you'll sacrifice that one-year-old lamb, male lamb, in the prime of his life, sacrificed, though he was perfectly without sin, do you see the analogy? You see, it always pointed toward the coming of Jesus Christ. He comes there as that Paschal Lamb presenting himself. Everything that they were doing that week that he enters into Jerusalem was a testimony, a foreshadowing, a type of what he would ultimately do just a little over three years later. The Scripture here, first of all, reminds us that apart from the revelation of God upon our hearts and minds, our, our mind's eye, we are spiritually dim in our vision. Second, religion not only dims our spiritual vision, but it dims, or excuse me, it dulls, if you will, our spiritual calling. Verse 14, it says there, And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. You say, what's that about spiritual calling? Because... This temple area was what we would call the temple, or excuse me, the court of the Gentiles. It was the, far, the farthest out from the temple proper. It was the biggest and the broadest of the, uh, the surrounding tents or the areas designated as part of the temple mount. It was that place, again, called the the court of the Gentiles, where those of other nationalities, those who had come, who were not Jews by birth, would come and interact with the Jews. They couldn't come into the court of women. They couldn't come into the court of men. They wouldn't be, obviously be in the in the inner plate, uh, area right in front of the tabernacle or then the temple itself because they weren't priests. But out in this outer area, they lost their sense of calling because instead of making that a place where as they had been singing upward, as they had been singing on higher ground, as they had been singing all the psalms that led to these festivals, going up to the high city of God, the place of God's presence among his people, instead of saying, you know what, there's other nationalities that we're called to be a light and a hope to. And instead of making sure that there was Adequate opportunity for that, where there was a conducive environment for discussing what it was about the God of the Jews that was different from all others. They made it a stockyard with oxen for the rich or for the most of the people they would sacrifice a, a lamb. Or maybe if they were very much a, a part of the poverty-stricken group, they would have the opportunity to buy two turtle doves or or two pigeons, and they brought all this, and they filled this, what was supposed to be the welcome door to the nations. They made it into a slaughterhouse. They made it into a stockyard. They made it into a place where men were exchanging uh, money. The reason being, again, they said, you know what? We're the Jews. Even to this day, sat down with a young man this morning, who is in a very difficult situation. He had married into a Jewish family. 
they, <laughs> like, and I quoted, I said, son, you know, part of your issue is, Amos asked this question, how can two walk together lest they be agreed? Your worldview was from the start. You knew better. He'd been raised in a godly home, a broken home, but a, a dad who, who had intentionally kept he and his brother in church. But he got away from the Lord, and now he's walking through some difficult waters. I said, there, there, there's, there's no easy way out of this. We're going to walk with you shoulder to shoulder. We're going to help you do whatever we can. But let me just share with you, there are two worldviews here. And instead of having a view for what God had called them to do, not to be huddled up and saying, hey, we've got God's special favor and that's just for us. And as long as we're biologically uh, born a Jew, that you know that's our special blessing from God. And well, the rest of you, well, you know, I'm sorry, <laughs> you're not a Jew. That's the kind of attitude they'd taken. It's kind of, you know, again, that, that whole me and mine, us four, no more. You know, that's, that's the kind of approach they had instead of saying, you know, God called us to open our doors and our hearts to people who had not yet been given the truth that we've been given. That God desires a relationship, that it's not about our works or how good we are, but it's about the precious shed blood of the Lamb. The Lamb who's coming. We're looking for Him. He might be right here among us. No, they had no opportunity because they had filled their outer court, that court of the Gentiles, that loosely said temple area, with everything that could distract from their calling and from what they were commissioned to do. Let me just share with you, friends, we need to be careful that we don't allow religion and religious practice and the busyness of our own faith journey hinder us from seeing those who have not yet come to Him and making room for them, making ways for them to feel the fact, you know, we say it all the time, love God, love people, share Jesus, and make disciples. Is that being effectively illustrated in each and every one of our individual lives? How did we wake up this morning saying, I, this, I'm going to love God because I'm going to give Him the first part of my day? That's, that's a given. That's just part of bre spiritual breathing. I, I take in God's Word. I breathe out prayer. I'm just going to do that because that's the natural order of a supernatural life in Christ. The Lord, <laughs> loving you is easy. Loving people, that's a little more challenging. So, Lord, I have to be intentional about that. How do you want me to do it today? Who do you want me to share your love with today? Because I need you to direct me and not only direct me in what I'm supposed to do, but empower me by your spirit to do it. Lord, I want to make sure that the open welcome door is clearly seen in my life. Because unless I do that intentionally, what's going to happen is that religion and the give and take, the, the, the ins and outs of daily living are going to dull my spiritual calling. I'm not going to be as attentive to it as I've been asked and commanded and empowered to do by your presence within. The third thing we understand about the fact that religion is, is an awful enemy toward the relationship that God wants. The problem with religion, not only that it dims our spiritual vision and dulls our spiritual calling, but religion also denies our spiritual depravity. Religion 
which I'm not, please understand, I'm not, I'm not telling you that religion in its truest sense is the opiate of the people, but as the Marxist wrote just that, sometimes, sometimes people substitute religion for the relationship and we forget how much we need Him. We begin to think, look with me in verse 15. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop actively making, this is the sense, continually, constantly, presently making my father's house a den of thieves. Religion... When we get into the flow, hey, I, you know, listen, folks, those of you who've, who've known me a little while, some of you in my life group, some of you have been around Bellevue enough that we've known each other for many years now, you may know I was raised in a Christian home, a Southern Baptist home. And I think, <laughs> I laugh, I think my parents felt if they kept me at church enough, I wouldn't learn to sin. But it's there where I learned to sin with the best of them, Okay. <laughs> The reality is you and I oftentimes, especially if we've been long at the faith, it may not be that you were like me, raised in a Christian home and came to Christ early. Maybe you've been a Christian for a while as an adult. Maybe it's not been years or maybe it's not even been decades, but you've been there long enough and you've kind of learned the, the, you know, the, the way to do Christianity around the people you're with. And it gets easy and you start thinking, Lord, you've been good to me. Thank you. Thank you. You know what? In fact, this, this life's pretty good. I appreciate it. And we're grateful, and we're grateful, and we're grateful, and then we're just presumptive. And then we forget where we came from. Maybe some of you were, were as, as pastors often do, maybe you had a life before Jesus. Your B.C. really has significance for you, okay? My life, B.C., you might say, I was, I was involved in some things that I regret that I was involved in. But praise the Lord, you're saved. Amen? But sometimes, even when those, those turnarounds, those repenting of 180 degrees, we, we're walking one way, we repent, and we turn our backs on that old life, and we trust Him fully. But somehow or another, the old man that we still have to daily take up our cross and die to, we forget to die daily as we should. And we begin to be presumptive because, well, you know, God saved me. He loves me. I'm grateful. Oh, my. Look at that person. Oh, they've really messed up their life. I wish, you know, people ought to know better. Or, you know what, that, that's probably the result of bad home training. Yeah. It may be, folks. That may be part of it. Their family of origin may be wrecked by sin. But let me just share with you. You still have a responsibility to remember, apart from Jesus, you are lost and undone. That it takes just as much blood, it took just as much blood to save your soul as it does anyone else's. And that you're not on higher ground just because you've been at it a little longer. You are still totally and completely, I'm still totally and completely dependent upon Christ for anything good that comes through my life. If you see anything worthy of praise, it's Jesus in me because Mike knows Mike. Today, I was early, I got out of, out of the house and I drove down for a visit in, at Baptist DeSoto and uh, 
visit the lady and her daughter and praise the Lord. This is such a neat story. Her name is there on the list, I believe. Uh, Sheila uh, Ashmore, older lady, very close to death. Just, a, just in the last few weeks, she's had about a month-long bout with respiratory issues. But uh, 10 days ago, watch because she, she and her daughter faithfully have watched our broadcast every Sunday. At the end of that broadcast, when Pastor gave the invitation to receive Christ, Miss Sheila prayed to receive Christ. Amen? So I'm there, and I'm just rejoicing. She's, she's affirming that's what she did. I'd visit her a couple of times, and she was still sedated because of all the things that were going on medically. But I got there, and her daughter was there, and she was awake. And they were so appreciative of the visit. I'm not saying about me, but they just were so appreciative that they could tell what God had done. So I was just about walking on air, leaving that ICU room. And as I got uh, around the corner, I pushed that door out of ICU and started toward the elevator. And this lady was uh, waiting on the elevator there. And she said, well, how are you doing? And I thought, if anybody's getting on an elevator with a six-foot-four, 200-none-year business man, and is that chipper at this early in the morning, I'm going to respond to her. So I did. I said, well, I'm better than I deserve. And I know you know, if you've been here a while, that's a Dave Ramsey quote. He says it all the time. And I'm not taking credit for it, but that's just kind of one I've adopted. <laughs> and she said, well, well, why do you say that? You know, she's just happy, but she's like, I have no clue why you're saying that. Well, I told her, well, I've read the book, and I know what I am apart from Jesus Christ. And she said, well, I guess that's right. Oh, ma'am, I know it's right. <laughs> I asked my wife, I know it's right. <laughs> the reality is I'm nothing apart from Christ. But when we get into religion, religion, because of the things that it does to our hearts and minds, apart from a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ that's fueling what we do and why we do it, it will dull our understanding that you are still, apart from Jesus, lost and undone. There's nothing good in you except what Christ is accomplishing what he's transforming. That doesn't mean you're not valuable. You know, people say you need to affirm people that they're seen and they're heard and, you know, and, you know, they're snowflakes, so we need to protect them. No, we need to tell them you're lost. You're a sinner. And apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, you're going <laughs> to snowflake, you're going to melt in hell. Now you say, oh, you're being very forward. Yes, I am. Why? Because knowing the days, and seeing the day approaching, we urge men with every ability we have to trust Christ. Not only is there a problem with religion, but if you'll look with me again, that problem concludes verse 17, at least this portion, verse 17. The disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. <laughs> I just want to tell you, folks, I would love to see some Baptists consumed by zeal for the house of the Lord. Now, I'm not talking about attendance. Please hear me. Attendance is a, a result of a, the reality of a zeal for the house of the Lord. Why? Because the house of the Lord, as quoted here, is about where the God's presence is. In just a moment, we're going to highlight that a little more. But here's what he's saying. It's not so much that he just loves coming to the temple. Listen, 
I'll tell you, I grew up in a church and in a family, especially the family, that was very church-oriented. I love my mom and dads. They're still serving the Lord. They're still faithful folks. But let me tell you, the love of and zeal for the house of the Lord is about knowing Him in the fullness of His presence. I want to know Him. I want to be with Him and Him with me. The zeal was not about the location. It was about the Lord. It was not about the, 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 the building. It was about what a blessing it is to remind myself that there is a Savior. That God has already, from the foundation of the Lord, slain that lamb for Himself. We are just picturing it in these, in these festivals. He's one day going to do it for us. The zeal of the house of the Lord is about knowing Him. And religion, religion can dull that as well. It can take away. It will we'll dim our vision. will dull our calling. will deny our depravity. And yes, we will dismiss our passion. We'll just say, you know what? Religion's suffice. It's... <laughs> We had the opportunity to spend a lot of time this last few days with our grandchildren, and that's a blessing. Please understand me. All four of them at once is a little challenge, but, uh, but it is really, they're fun. They're fun. And we've got stories. Even this last few days that we've been with them, we've got new stories that people say, you really ought to write that down, and we ought to. But they're happening so fast and so often, we don't get them all down. But I remember early on with each of them, sometimes they'll, they'll try, their mom's trying to get them on a, uh, in those early months trying to get them on a feeding schedule. And, and sometimes they get to, to crying or complaining or getting to wanting. You know, you don't know what they're saying, but moms really have a, you know, a sense about that. That's, that's not a hungry cry. That's I'm complaining cry. You know, I'm just not happy and you're not going to make me. Well, in order to put off the feeding of the, of the meal that, that was scheduled, sometimes she'd put a little apple juice in a lot of water. And it would satisfy the, the stomach or it would fill the stomach just a little while until there was actual time for the feeding. You say, what's all that about tonight? Because religion does the same thing. It sweetens our tongue just enough that we lose a passion for the real thing. We, we, we'll put it off. Oh, yeah, I, I know I need to do that. I know... Even in the times of hardest struggle, when a pastor, and, I, and I've seen this this week, when a pastor says, you know, you need to, do you have a daily quiet time? Do you really listen to the Lord? Do you read it for yourself? Do you, do you pray and tell him what you're concerned about? Do you, do you ever write down anything that God's done and you're thankful for, or you're praying about, or you're challenged by, whatever? Do you do just some simple things and they just, they'll stare at you like, I, I, what, what language are you speaking I know it's English, and it's, it's not even good English. It's Southern English, so I know they understand me. But the reality is we will fill our lives with what we think is good things and never get to the best thing. We satisfy ourselves with religious activity, whatever it may be. You fill in the blank of what that's been in your life or could be in your life right now. And we never get past it to what God really wants in a vibrant relationship with Him. Second, not only is religion a problem, not only do we need to see the religion 
of the day, the, the false religion, the, the man-made and man-manipulated religion that goes on both then and now. But also what he does, that is Christ, in the prediction of a resurrection. The prediction of a resurrection. Look with me in verse 18 and following. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us that you're at, show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said to uh, then, excuse me, then the Jews said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. When he begins this first public appearance at Jerusalem as the coming and eventually the final Passover lamb. And he cleanses the temple because you see, folks, religion often has to be cleared out before a relationship can be established. How many times I cannot count when I've asked people, do you know Christ is your Savior? Oh, yeah, I've been baptized. I don't know whether it was the influence of people like Junior Hill or Adrian Rogers or others that were way more mature and further along in the ministry than I was at the time. But even as a young pastor, I'd go, I, I didn't ask about your baptism. I just, you know, and, and again, I've, I've, I've been this big a long time, okay? So by the time I was pastoring, I was already 6'4", 200 and none of your business, okay? So they were like, well, what are you doing? What, what is this? It, who, you know, like, what right do you have to ask this question? Just like the Jews were asking Jesus, in a sense. By what authority are you telling me that I, that I need something different than what I have? Who are you to tell us that the... The money changing, and by the way, only temple coins could be used to purchase the animals. And so they would bring from all over the world, the known world, where Jews would travel for Passover each year, they would bring their coins. And there would be, a, a, in effect, a, a, a currency exchange bank table. But part of that was, you know, there's... There's a cost of the exchange. You know, there's a handling fee. And that was determined by whoever was sitting at the table. And a lot of times while those animals were there for sacrificial purposes, not all of them, while they might have just been technically okay, they weren't what God had asked but the people had come a long way. They, they couldn't bring all the animals, so they were, were intending to buy. So that not only have they gotten less of their money in exchange, but now they're buying inferior sacrifices. And they didn't intend that, perhaps. Maybe they had a good heart. Maybe they wanted to do right by the Lord as they'd come so far and made that journey. But the reality was the people, the leaders, the ones that had over, maybe they weren't directly at the table, but they gave approval to it, had said, that's okay. We'll take it because you see our concern is to keep up temple activity, to keep up old religion instead of inviting people to a true and honest and authentic relationship. But when he walks in, he cleanses the temple. And looking 
at the scene, the leaders ask for a sign. Like, prove it, buddy. What, on what ground, by who, who gave you a writ of approval that you could do such things in our temple? Well, <laughs> because of their blindness, they didn't know they were looking at the Lord of the temple right there. It was his house. Now, he called it the Father's house because in the incarnation, he'd put all authority that he had in, in the Father's hands and, and temporarily set aside the prerogatives of deity so that he might show us how to live fully in the Spirit, in surrender, in obedience to the Father. But the reality was that these men had just seen the Paschal Lamb of promise clear out religion so that a relationship could be afforded to all who would believe, and they wanted a sign, as if he were not authority enough. Second, not only do we see the prediction of his coming and his clearing so that there might be this sacrificial lamb and that he would be that substitutionary lamb, they, they couldn't see that, but look with me again. Not only in verse 18, but verse 19 says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, this inner room of the sanctuary, the holy of holies. What he was saying is, don't you understand? The presence of God that you believe happens on the day of atonement, in that one moment when the high priest once a year and only him goes into the holy of holies, and you think that because of the Shekinah glory and, and the, the, all that that's represented on the Day of Atonement, that God is making himself manifest. He's making his presence known with his people just that one day. Don't you understand? That presence is right here. I'm him. If you destroy this temple, and it, maybe they were looking away. Maybe they were looking at each other. Maybe they were just kicking the sand under their feet. Maybe they weren't paying attention. But it's almost as if he's saying, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. He was already saying there's going to be a resurrection. I mean, listen, folks, if you, on your first opportunity to open up this, the, the, the discussion with the public at large, and you say, look, here's what I'm coming to. Now, he'd already told his mother a few days before, it's not yet my hour. Now he's telling them there's an hour coming when I'm going to be the lamb. But right now you need to know the authority is my presence because I am that temple. I am that Shekinah glory. I am the express image of the Godhead. All the Godhead dwells in me bodily. And yet you don't get it because religion has dulled and dimmed and denied all that is true. Look with me. He says in verse 20, uh, the script, John writes, the Jews then said, and you can almost hear the laughter, the chuckling that's happening along with this, this statement. It took 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? Again, but he was speaking of the temple, that inner sanctuary of his body. They didn't get it. But the laughter and the scorn... Oh, my friends, it displayed not their godliness, but their carnality, their wickedness, their rebellion against truth. 
And let me explain. I'm not talking about peripheral Jews that just came once a year just for this one thing and then they went back to their old lives living like the world. I'm talking about those who had given the sign and done all the, the, jumped through all the hoops to be the religious leaders of the day. He's telling them the truth and their hearts are so bitter toward the truth. So convinced they know better than God of very God standing in front of them that they cannot see that the Lamb of God is right before them. Scripture finally says in this, passage, in this portion of our passage about this prediction of the resurrection that there is light that dawns in the fullness of the resurrection that happened later. Look with me. Verse 21. Verse, excuse me, verse 22. So when he was raised from the dead, that's obviously John the writer saying, now when everything was said and done, I'm now writing years later, but here it is. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples, that's including me, John would say, remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures. That is all the scriptures about the Passover and what God would do in his sacrifice and the word which Jesus had spoken right there. They saw all of the Old Testament bringing itself to fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And even his words coincided with all the prophecies and made it clear this was the Lamb of God. The idea of Passover and that Passover sacrifice is pivotal to John in all throughout his gospel. And you and I need to understand that from the start, Jesus knew publicly, personally, powerfully what his life's mission was. It was the cross. It was our salvation. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. Isn't that awesome? That there was never, oh, well, you know, I'm just trying to figure out God's will for my life. Wait a minute. We left everything to follow you. You don't know what God's will for your life is? No, 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 friends. We have a Savior who from the moment that he could utter truth was about his father's business. And when he got the opportunity to face off against the public uh, leadership of dead religion, he was clear. You think you're, you're celebrating Passover right here? This is all just preparatory. This is all just a foreshadowing of what I am gloriously going to do on behalf of all who would believe in the saving power of the shed blood of God's perfect Lamb of glory. Last Look with me again. He's not only <laughs> cleansing the temple or cleaning house, but he also is very aware of our contaminated hearts. You see, this last section, I want to tell you, there's not just a problem with religion. There's not just a prediction of a resurrection, but there, <laughs> there's a pathology of rebellion. God knows, listen to me carefully, God knows all believers aren't alike. Now some of you are thinking, what in the world does he mean? I'm not telling you that God doesn't give every one of us opportunity to know him. He would that all men should be saved. But I want to tell you, God knows all believers are not the same. Look with me. 
He says in verse 23 and following, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. Now, the problem here is twofold. First of all, the word believe. And the other part of it is that the signs that he was doing. Because we're told here in the passage we looked at last week in chapter 2, first part, verses 1 through 11, that the first sign he ever did was at the marriage feast of Canaan. And it's not until a little while later that John says the second sign that he performed. So what signs is he talking about here? Again, John is writing after the resurrection. In the full light of the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. So he's looking back and he's presenting a case of persuasive reasoning of why we should believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we might have life in his name. And that is why he says they were believing. This was a perennial thing. Throughout his ministry, each time he came, he many times, you, you know the stories. Not, excuse me, story. I hate, I don't hate a lot of things, but I hate the misuse of words. And when you talk about God's word, we're not talking about Bible stories. Okay. Why am I, you say, well, that's what they are. No, I understand what you may have learned coming up and what you mean in your heart. You may clear, have a clarity. I believe the word of God is true from cover to cover and all of that. I'm, I'm with you, brother Mike. Great. But today we have to communicate a little different because words change their meaning. The reality is you and I need to be affirming. These are not stories. This is historical narrative. But when John's looking back, he's, he knows those, those episodes of the life of Christ that he's looking at in, in completion and he's saying, listen, there were people all the time around Jesus that would believe. And they would tell you, they believe. Believe in, it's the word, have faith. They, they've entrusted themselves to him. It's the word, and, and that's why Bible scholars get all worked up because they think, well, it says they really believed. But then the context, the further explanation, look with me. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone, that is, <laughs> Jesus didn't need anybody to tell him about truth. Why? Because he is the truth. He's not true. He is the truth. All things that you want to, well, is that true or not, measured against Jesus. Because he's that measure of what true and not true is. Perfect measure. But what Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, let me just share with you, God knows all believers aren't the same. You say, what do you mean? Well, let me just encourage you. You remember the parable that Jesus used to teach about the four soils? The first was the soil, the word, the seed was the Word of God. Jesus explained this to His disciples. Luke 8, if you want to look it up, Luke 8 talks about the parable and it tells the, tell, uh, records the parable of the four soils. Every place that the seed, the truth fell, was equally the seed, equally possessed all power to change lives, but 
Here it is. First of all, very quickly, the first, some folks are fickle, like the roadside. Oh, they're interested for a minute. They see the signs. They see evidence that say, hey, that's, that's pretty unusual. That's, or that's really neat, or that's very kind, or those folks really do some good things. I, you know, this Christian stuff, maybe it has some interest. But they're not really sincere. They're fickle because the next thing that comes along, they'll float off to it. Second, some are not just fickle. Some, like those that fell on the rough ground, are fragile. They want to believe. They want to believe this is what I've been looking for. I mean, they would say, hey, Bono, I've found it. What you've been looking for. (laughs) Y'all will get that later. But anyway, you and I need to understand. There are people who start off and they have all appearance of sincerity, but they have no root. Their life is planted in the emotional excitement of the moment. They, they get all involved and they want to take on all this, but they have no root. They don't really know the why behind the what. And so life happens. The heat of the day, the struggles of life happen, and they don't have any root, and they wither and fall away. Third, there, yes, there, there are some that are fickle. There are some that are fragile. But there's also those that grow up among the thorns. There are some that they set down roots. I think, here's what I believe, they're saved. They're saved. But they just get caught up and let things of the world catch them up. At the end, God will separate the wheat from the tares, and yes, they'll go into heaven but they're not going to produce the fruit that God intended because they would not separate themselves from the world. They allowed everything else to have just as much priority as their walk with Christ. And the last, there's some that are fertile. They are willing to count the cost. They are willing to say, I've trusted him, and I'm not sure that I know. In fact, I'm surely aware that I don't know everything I'm going to know when I see him face to face, but I know enough of him that when life gets hard, I'm going to draw near to him and he's going to draw near to me. I'm going to continue to put down roots. And when I get started, when the winds blow and the rains come and the storms blast my life, I'm going to just put down further roots. I'm going to say, nevertheless, I trust him. And what's happening is that during those hard times, their roots are going deeper and deeper and they're able to to draw up all that God has for them in the blessings of knowing Him. And then they produce some 20-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. And they're, they're the fertile believers. They're the ones that reproduce the faith. God knows not all believers are the same. Why? Because some folks, though they be given the same truth, the same seed of life, they're going to respond differently. And Jesus here is described by John, the beloved disciple, as he was not entrusting himself to them. Now this is not, please hear me, this is not leeway for you to stop trusting people. 
I'm not saying if you've got a bad attitude, if you say, I knew it, even Jesus says you can't trust people. No, that's not what he said. He said he wasn't giving himself. He wasn't leaning on. He wasn't putting his dependence upon people but because, because he knew of the fickle and frail, fruitless folks as well as the fertile. God wants you and me to hear this. Your trust, first and foremost, just like his, has to be in the Father. You, when you and I get an understanding of who he is, that is what our relationship with the Father is, and we begin to clear out the things that would distract us, guess what? God begins to do deepening work in us. And we can love people freely. Not because they're trustworthy, but because he's trustworthy. Because, listen, y'all remember what Dr. Rogers used to say some marriages are like? Some marriages are like two ticks and no dog. You remember that? Both of them sucking blood and there's no blood, okay? I got, I'm going to get out of this marriage what I can get out of it. I'm getting out of this relationship what I can get out of it. That's not the call. When you and I are, bring, are, are being supplied daily by the life of Christ within us, we can love people without expecting anything in return. I think that's called agapao, God's love. It just becomes our nature, just like it's his nature. He's recreating his nature, and he's displaying his nature through us. We love because it becomes our new nature in Christ, not because we want something out of somebody or we anticipate they're going to return it. If they do, wonderful. If they don't, as difficult as it is, my faith's not shaken because I wasn't trusting people. I was trusting Christ. My love doesn't flow out of them or, or bounce back or reflect them. It reflects the life that Christ has put in me. That's the desire. Now, now, again, in a sense, none of us can preach this kind of thing without preaching beyond our practice. But this is what God's Word tells us. That we can trust the Father and love people no matter where they are spiritually no matter how mature or immature they are spiritually, no matter where they are, whether they even trust Christ or not, whether they're totally against the faith or whether they're totally in the faith, doesn't matter. We can love them because we're going to love like he does. You know, his nature is just to love. We just all get caught in it. We just he, The path of his love just flows out and all of us are the recipients of it. You say, well, I wish God would show me he loved me. But God commendeth his love toward us. That is, he illustrated it toward and for us and before us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What more can we ask? The one who is the Passover lamb has arrived publicly in this passage. And what he's saying is this, religion will never suffice for relationship. So my question tonight is, where are you in your relationship with Christ? Do you have a relationship? If not, then today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time.